Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of James as we are rolling right along in our series in James. The, the passage is printed for you just under the song we sang, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to James chapter 4. Again, our passage this morning is James 4, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. If you can recall how James began his letter, all the way back in James chapter 1, first couple of verses, he addresses it to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which is a way of saying that he's writing to the church all over. He's writing to the church that's just out in the world. It's applicable for all of us who are scattered because, of course, we indeed are part of that heritage of a scattered church. That's what the church is. A church by, by, by its nature is, is scattered. And all of this is to say, and I'm bringing this up now because if you want to get hit with a quick dose of realism, and James has plenty of realism, he's asking us, he's asking all of us, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So think about this. James can ask the same question to churches all over the place. And as we also know, all through time, he asks a question that is pressing for every congregation. What causes quarrels and fights among you? It goes without saying that that churches, of course, are not exempt from the conflict that we find in our homes. 
the conflict that can be in our marriages, the conflict that we can have in the workplace. Churches are no exception. There's, there's the quote that you've probably heard. It's, it's attributed to a number of different people, but it's, it's always something along the lines of, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And I think that's a good quote. It's a, it's a true quote. It's, it, it expresses some, some really great ideas in that kind of snippet. But I always think when I hear that quote, when was the last time you were in a hospital? When was the last time that you sat in a full waiting room at the ER? Because you will hear some disturbing sounds, the moans and the groans, and you look around saying, who needs to be seen first? You see sights that just make you feel uncomfortable. In other words, there's nothing romantic or sentimental about this idea of the church being a hospital for sinners. We're all broken. We're all needy. We're all sinners. We're all in need of salvation. We can use James's diagnoses from the last few weeks. We gather as a people who struggle to bridle our tongues. We all tend to show some kind of partiality. We're all good at expressing our appreciation for God's word and then not doing what it says. We're all good at falling apart under the weight of trials Therefore, becoming bitter. So you throw all of those ingredients in the pot and you stir it up and what do you have? You have a recipe for conflict. You have a recipe for quarrels and fights. The philosopher Baruch Spinoza once wrote, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. And he wrote that in the 60s, the 1660s. There's nothing new under the sun. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Well, it makes sense, okay? So James has just discussed the power of words, and so he turns to some of our most damaging use of words, which is our conflicts with one another. And so this morning, we just have the two points that are listed for you on your, on your bulletin. First of all, we will look at the source of our conflicts, and then secondly, we will, we will look at the solution for our conflicts. We may be hit with realism, but we also have the hope of God's promise to us, all right? So the source of our conflict and then the solution. Let's take a look at verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Why am I disagreeable, grumpy, moody, irritable, impatient, angry, quarreling, fighting? And God's perfect word gives us the answer. We don't have to look any further. Your passions are at war within you. Now, what does that mean? Now, we have to unpack, we have to break down this idea because that's the answer. Our passions are at war within us. That's the root of all of our conflict. It's not your spouse. It's not your coworker. It's not your boss. It's you. It's inside. It's not out there. It's in here. That's the source of all the conflict. We all have a heart problem that spills outside of us, our, our passions. And, and this is a word that can also be our pleasures. It's the same Greek root word for, for hedonism. So it's our pleasures. It, it's, it's, it's our passions that are at war. We are a people who are internally conflicted, restless, seeking those things, those occasions that will bring us pleasure, that will meet and fulfill our desires. So the problem that we have is a very ordinary problem. 
We have a self-centered heart, and we have a controlling spirit of self-interest. Now, this is probably the opposite way of how we normally think about our conflicts and how we normally think about our quarrels. Typically, we're looking outside of ourselves. What's wrong with us? Well, it's the people around me that are the problem. It's the circumstances that are the problem. But James says, well, that's not what wisdom says. You have to start inside. What desires are controlling you? Such an important point because it speaks to how we were created. God created human beings to experience joy and fulfillment. We were created to find perfect rest in our hearts. The destructiveness of sin from from families at each other's throats to geopolitical conflicts and everything in between all arises out of the fact that that deep hunger that we were created with, we still have. We still have this thirst, and it can't be quenched by anything in this world. We still have this appetite, and there's nothing in the world that can satiate it. And so we have these desires that drive us, and yet we're restless, and those desires conflict with each other, and so we're a mess. James continues with the life cycle of this destructive behavior. Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, so what's the diagnosis? Our hearts are misfiring with desire and coveting. James says this is true, and he's writing this 2,000 years ago. Little could he imagine the ways that we are inundated with these varieties and these demands for our attention that that captivate us and, and that beg for our desires to be fulfilled in them. We're inundated with things that promise rest and prosperity and beauty and satisfaction. Advertisers are our modern day prophets because they're pointing out our sins, they're pointing out our lack, they're pointing out the ways that we are unfulfilled, and then they're telling us, so here is where you find wholeness and health and life. What product, what experience can give us what we need? But I think most of us know this. We know they don't satisfy, they're false prophets. They offer visions of the good life that don't deliver. We are all in this pursuit of rest and contentment and satisfaction and joy. And we're in a culture telling us it's found in countless different ways. There's no interest for 24 months, despite the fact that all we've ever known is unrest. It's probably the greatest line from St. Augustine in his confessions, right? Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. And so the problem is that we have this desire, this deep yearning. We have our heart set on something that will give us happiness, joy, pleasure, and satisfaction. And James says we chase that desire and it becomes this tumbleweed of destruction. It's not that every misplaced desire leads to murder. Of course that's not true. He's saying you can't go to the big sins without the heart sins. He's reinforcing what his brother Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to understand murder, you have to look at the heart, and then you have to see how the heart begins to come out through the mouth through insults, and that's where you get to murder. But it's all the same DNA. Quarrels happen because of bitter hearts. Conflicts arise out of deep desires unmet. Behaviors arise out of longings unfulfilled. 
And so James, right, with this wisdom in the way of Jesus, he's helping us here to understand how wisdom is all about getting below the surface of our behaviors. When you're angry, hostile, when you're fighting, when you have no patience, when people are grating on your nerves, when you're disagreeable, you can't settle with behavioral change. It's not enough. Instead, we need to ask, what am I desiring? And in what ways am I desiring that thing? What am I longing for? Why am I responding in this way? What's the idol that I'm chasing? What's the desire that I'm lusting after? What explains my behavior? Let me give you a couple examples of this that hopefully are relatable. You, you come home from work or you've spent the afternoon cleaning and organizing and the kids have managed to destroy every habitat that they have been in. There are Legos everywhere. It, it looks like they got out every art supply. They, they, they use that one art supply for 30 seconds before moving on to the next art supply. Um, they, they really want a snack, but you have to start making a dinner that they're not gonna wanna eat. And so what happens? You lose it. You lose it. You let them have it. You blow up, you're angry, and you let them know it. Now let's take a step back. You have some pretty good desires in there, right? Some pretty reasonable, even God-honoring desires. Maybe you have a desire for respect. You're the parent. Is that good? Yeah. You have a desire for peace. You have a desire for order. You have a desire for your own pleasure. After all, they've had me time all afternoon. When do I get my me time? The desire for a well-run home that's clean and peaceful and those good desires transform into destructive behaviors because of pride. Ultimately, you're saying, I deserve better than this. But being right is not a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is. Gentleness is. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Otherwise, what? Because you can self-justifyingly as a parent, and I think we can all do this, we can all say, like, at the end of the day, I am right. At the end of the day, my kids owe me these things. And James says, that's fine. Here are the quarrels and the fights. Another example. So much conflict in the church comes from a, a self-justifying tendency to want to point out the flaws in others. That's why the church is often thought of as, a, as, as not a very safe place. It's, we're the forgiven ones who then want to immediately judge. Look at verse 11. I mean, James has some really, really powerful words here. Again, he sounds just like his brother Jesus. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. A telltale sign of a heart that is not at rest in Christ is that you talk people down. What causes someone to sow discord and to gossip and to be constantly analyzing others? And I think you can, you can locate this answer because we've, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all said words that, that, that fall into those categories, right? What causes them? What causes us to gossip about someone? What causes us to be malicious and to slander? Uh, Self-righteousness, isn't it? It's pride. I love the quote that I gave you in the front of your bulletin by Derek Prime. The man who knows himself finds himself increasingly silent in the presence of the fault of others. Ask me how I know you know the depths of your sinfulness and the merciful heart of Christ, and my answer will be, well, how do you speak of others? How do you speak and how do you not speak about others? 
Because otherwise, you're communicating that you don't know yourself. Well, that's a source of conflict. It's the passions in us. It's the desires. It's the longings. What's the solution for James? Well, let's just keep going under the surface. That's where we have to go. We have to go under the surface. And so take a look at verses 4 through 10. We'll look at those again. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. A lot to unpack there. First of all, James invites us to consider as we're thinking about our desires, where do our loyalties lie? What is shaping my desires? What is shaping my commitments, my values, my pleasures, my yearnings? And so he uses this idea of friendship. I think it's just a helpful, um, really digestible way to think about where we place our loyalties. Am I pursuing friendship with God or am I pursuing friendship with the world? James says, you can't be friends with both. The two are mutually exclusive. We need to figure out why they're so mutually exclusive. Why is it a zero-sum game? Now, the word world in the Bible, uh, it can often be neutral. It can be good, right? God created the world, and we would say that's a good thing. God so loved the world, um, a, a relatively good thing. But here, world is not good. World is not neutral. World is the fallen, broken, sin-colored, sin-cursed system that we live in. To be a friend of this world is to embrace and, and be shaped by the world's values. It's to share the same view of the world on any given thing. It's to assume the world's definitions. It's to share in the world's mission. I think one of the greatest writings on friendship is in C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, where he contrasts friendship with romantic love. When we're talking about romantic love, it's about two lovers who gaze into each other's eyes. Uh, if you've been in love, what do you talk about with the other person when you're in love? You talk about each other. You talk about the relationship. You talk about what's going on between the two of you, and that's good. That's what romantic love is, but that's not friendship. Friendship doesn't sit across from one another. You stand shoulder to shoulder with a friend because you share the same values and you share the same interests. And so you walk in tandem towards something. But that's not what lovers are. Those are friends. You know, it's really helpful. It's really, it's really insightful. And I think it's insightful when we take this idea of what it means to be a friend of the world or to, or to be a friend of God. To be a friend of the world is to allow the world to define what is good and desirable in your life. So you stand next to the world's values. You give authority to the culture you find yourself in, and that's folly. It's unstable. Our culture constantly changes. It makes new demands on us and how it defines success and beauty and joy and happiness and fulfillment. But to be a friend of God is to have better, truer, more beautiful, eternal, lasting values pressed upon you. The world's definition of beauty and the gospel's definition of beauty are at complete odds. They're at complete odds. 
The world says you hit a certain age, beauty is not attainable for you. You look a certain way, beauty is not attainable for you. The gospel knows no categories like that. The world's definition of success and the gospel's definition of success, um, they never cross paths. So who are you going to be friends with? The world's definition of happiness and joy, right? You just need to be true to you. And the gospel's definition of happiness, you have to take up your cross. They're they're at complete odds. You can't be friends with both. So Jesus comes to us in all of our futile, rebellious, destructive attempts to squeeze meaning out of this broken world. And he says, all of those futile ways have been defeated in my death. Come to me and I'll give you rest. The better word of the gospel is that you have a bridegroom who adorns you with beauty that doesn't fade. You have no need to fear rejection or shame or irrelevance. You are beautiful in the gospel. The gospel is the better word of joy. Jesus says you have to trust me because you need to die to finding happiness and joy where everyone else is telling you to look. But I'm telling you that's the good life. Take up your cross and find everything you're looking for in me. The gospel has to shape our desires. Do you notice the very intense language in the middle of our passage? These are are biblical allusions with an A where we are to find life. Draw near, cleanse your hands. That's priestly language of where we are to draw near to God. James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Now, there's nothing wrong with laughter. I I think Jesus laughed a whole lot because of how joyful he was. So what's he talking about? This is is the prophetic language. The picture I would give you is that you are, are walking down the Las Vegas Strip and you are able to see that all of the promises of pleasure and happiness and joy and fulfillment They're all facades. And maybe conversely, especially the laughing part, is that if you were to stand up in the middle of the the strip and you were to present Christ to the audience, everyone would laugh at you and say you were crazy. It's the language of a prophet because it's the language of understanding where values should lie. In verse 5, James moves here. He says our desires need to be ruled by God's desires, and so he's going to talk about God's desires. So how does, what does our desire have to do with God's desire? God yearns jealously, that language of yearning, that language of desiring, right? That's, that's the tie-in. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God yearns for the spirit. What does this mean? I think James is talking about the human spirit. This isn't the Holy Spirit. This is the life breath. This is the air we breathe. God yearns over the people that he has created. He is jealous over his his creation. James's point is that God is jealous over the very life that he has given us. He's jealous over the life that he has given you. This is not a crazy idea, right? Those whose breath is precious to us, those are the people we love. To be deeply in love with someone is, for that person, everything about them, even the quirky stuff, it becomes precious to you. A wife is jealous of her husband because he does belong to her. He's precious to her. As one writer puts it, jealousy, jealousy, properly considered, is a necessary ingredient of all true love. You could say the opposite of jealousy, and obviously jealousy with sin can can become... um, wicked, it can become evil, but the opposite of jealousy is really indifference, and indifference is not a category of love. 
And so before our creator, every breath is precious. Your life is, is precious. You only have life because he has given it to you. God has every right to take it. What do we do? We long for other things. We live for other things. God is the lover of our soul, and it's just about the first opportunity we go and seek other lovers. And so the jealousy of God doesn't sound very comforting. Kind of sounds like bad news, doesn't it? A husband is jealous for his wife, but his wife keeps cheating on him. What will that do to the relationship? It will come to an end. And so likewise, is it true that God is the creator and sustainer and lover of our souls, and at the first chance we turn to other lovers, won't God just quit on us? Shouldn't God just quit on us? Go back to desire, because that's the, that's the point here. That's the topic. Our hearts are bitter, and they're angry with envy and coveting, because we're saying what? I just want what I deserve. And yet, when we see what we truly deserve, what do we see? Like a serial adulteress, don't we deserve, deserve abandonment? When we're able to see what we truly deserve, don't we just see we deserve abandonment? And isn't that what hell is? Eternal abandonment from God. And yet it's when we realize what we really deserve that we are in the arena of grace. If God's jealousy were the final word, it would be a word of judgment, but that's not where James goes. Don't miss the but, right? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is the gospel. We scorned God in our hearts, and yet God poured out on Christ the wrath that we deserved. We broke God's heart, but instead of returning the brokenness on us, which is what we deserve, he consumed it in himself and his son Jesus. The cross announces to us that the jealousy of God is not a threat. Instead, in Christ, the jealousy of God is the evidence that he'll never abandon you or forsake you. You are assured God delights in you, which has to shape our desires. Nothing in the world will satisfy us, but I am satisfied in him. Nothing in the world deserves our joy, but God does. Nothing in the world lasts except this one. So as we wrap up, what does all of this have to do with conflict and, and quarreling? How does this relate to misfiring desire? Everything. That God's desire for us is displayed so clearly on the cross. Doesn't that have to shape what we long for? What we yearn for? That we would trust in, in where God has us and that we would remember that the loudest, most enduring word over us is this word of grace. To find yourself more and more familiar with God's grace. And what does that lead to? Humility. The, the, the Christian life, when it's, when it's operating right, is a dance. It's this dance between grace and humility. The first step toward joy is to realize that nothing in the world can provide the kind of joy that we were created to need, and yet we find it fulfilled. Nothing in the world can provide the kind of joy we were created to need, and so give it up. Let it go. 
Give up what you think you deserve. Give up what you envy and come empty-handed and you will be filled. God exalts those who are low. Come knowing that the way to exaltation is, is through humiliation. I think of John 4, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, right? What does he say? You have to be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, you have no idea what you need. To be a human being in the world is to be restless with bent desires. You have no idea what you need in order to find the joy that you were created to have. So start over. And God in Christ invites us into a new life freed from the chase, freed from the insecurities, free from the vulnerability of creating meaning of our lives ourselves, called into finding your satisfaction in Christ, resting in the fact that the God who gives you life is the God who yearns over you. What is wisdom in the way of Jesus when it comes to our quarrels and our fights? It's being sensitive to our desires and seen by the power of the Holy Spirit the way that they must align more and more to the desires of the heart of God. The God who's not only our creator, who yearns over the spirit that he has given us, but our savior who has redeemed it. Our God who is for us. Wisdom is a life of applying what Christ has done so that in every circumstance we remember who we are. And that's good news. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we, uh, we sit here this morning, as, as we sit here every day, as those whose hearts are ready for battle. Even for those of us who, who maybe lean toward uh, passivity and peacekeeping, Oftentimes what that results in is just inner conflict and inner turmoil and inner quarrels. And yet still no peace. There's still no peace. Lord, we, we know you are a God of peace who, is, who has called us um, to, to live and to share in that abundant life that you have given to us. And so my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only you can do in unveiling um, those desires that captivate us, those yearnings, those lusts, those longings that, that drive us, that, that lead us into a life of, of conflict and restlessness and despair. And Lord, shape us more and more by your desires. Lord, would we know that our cup can only be filled through you, and, and, and would we by your spirit live like that? Lord, would we leave here not forgetting this word, but, but letting wisdom do its work in, in burrowing beneath the surface, revealing where our idols are, revealing those lesser lovers that we leave you for. Lord, would you do that work, not to leave us in despair, but to turn us back to Christ, to see his goodness and beauty, to see his faithfulness for us. And it's in his name we pray, amen.